The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number 78 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. My name is Sean Rapier. I'm your host, and this week in the conversation... My guest is Brian Gibson. Brian spent many years in Hollywood working on uh, several TV shows you know very well as a writer and a producer. Recently, he joined BYU TV as an executive producer, and Brian is just an amazing guy with some really great stories. And uh, this week in my Latter-day Life, I'll tell you some thoughts that I had while being in a waiting room. It's all coming up for you, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And here this week in the Latter-day Live studio, my guest is one of, if I had to say, top 10 favorite people in the world. This man easily makes it into the top 10. Strong contender for top At number five. 10. <laughs> no, you're a strong contender. Nine? For top five, Uh, my guest is a writer, he is a producer, he's done some directing, all kinds of stuff in the world of film, we're going to talk about it all. Brian Gibson, welcome to the Latter-day Lives podcast. Uh, Thank you so much, so glad to be here. So I'll I'll take our listeners back as to why Brian is one of my favorites. Uh, Let's go back in the Wayback Machine, (laughs) probably 27 years ago or so, I was a young missionary just getting out to the mission field and the office all came out to meet us out at the uh, bus terminal as we had come down to southern chile and there was brian one of the first people i met when i arrived in the mission and from that point on brian gibson was my companion who was never my companion we were together a lot more than some of our other companions (laughs) but it's really fun to catch up since then he's become a star in the film world but let's take it way back brian way back tell us a little bit about where you're from where you grew up oh uh yeah i'm from colorado i grew up in littleton colorado uh which is a suburb of denver loved it there still consider myself a coloradan yeah huge denver broncos fan you haven't lived there for a long time though yeah, I lived there uh, most of my childhood. I was born in Salt Lake, but uh, my parents moved when I was little, and I lived there most of my childhood. Yeah. So when you were a kid, were you always a creative? Was that was that like storytelling? Was that always your thing? Or that well, I remember later? from an early age wanting to be a writer, loving to read, loving stories of all kinds. Yeah. Comic books, novels, movies, TV all that stuff, and uh, never really outgrew that. No, yeah. no, sir. And you love, uh, I know this about you, that, that you love sci-fi, you love horror, you love yes. kind of things that are supernatural, I guess, in That's nature. That's true. I've honestly never met a genre I haven't liked, yeah. except for maybe romantic comedy. <laughs> not a rom-com I actually, guy? I actually like romantic comedies, but uh, they have to be good. They, they have to be, be like done, a classic. Yeah. They got to be done really well. Because a bad horror movie, in my opinion, yeah. still you can have a good time with. And, a, and and a lot of genres are like that. A bad rom-com, yeah. I'd rather, die. rather I, die. I I basically have a rule that if Jason Statham is in it, I want to see it. I don't care. That's a good rule. And almost none of them are good. Good enough. Though. But I want to see them. Yeah. Yes, I You're get right. that. So good, I get that. So action adventure can also be 
action can be bad and good. Yeah. But you're right. Romantic comedy, when it's bad, it's just bad. Yes. Okay, that's fair. That's, that's uh, yeah, so the truth. So one other thing I know that I remember is that you were quite a student. You were a scholar growing up. I remember yeah. that because you... You had an amazing scholarship to BYU. That's true. What was your scholarship? I didn't know you were going to bring that up, but I will, I will cop to it. Yes. As what was called an Ezra Taft Benson scholar. An that Ezra kind of Taft ages me. Benson scholar. <laughs> yes. Is that still a thing? I think they've changed the name of it. Mm. Uh, so it's not named after the current prophet when you attend BYU. Yeah. Um, but I think that they still have it. And it, I'll, I don't, I don't, it was neat. I, I got to be honest, that was special about it is if I hadn't gotten that scholarship, I may not have gone to BYU. Yeah. If I hadn't gone to BYU, I may not have gone on a mission. Yeah. And I may not have ever met you. We wouldn't And be I may not here. be active in the Church of Jesus Christ anymore. <laughs> I don't know. So I honestly think um, that perhaps is pretty I got special. That, yeah. Perhaps I got that because, because God wanted me path. to go to BYU rather yeah. than I was all of that. I mean, I was a good student, but yeah. there were a lot of brilliant kids that. I had, you know, when you get that scholarship at the time, you you come out with all these really smart kids, and you get interviewed by professors, and they ask you, you know, what are the last ten books you read? And expect you to talk about, <laughs> you know, like different academic subjects. It was a very intimidating experience, and there were some amazing kids from all over the country, and and I was very fortunate to get that scholarship. Do you remember the first real thing you wrote? Do you remember the first thing wow. you thought, this is my thing? Was it a book, a poem, a story? Do you remember? What's the first thing you remember writing? Wow, that's an interesting question. So I'm sure I wrote all sorts of weird stories, and my mom kept a lot of them. One thing I do remember <laughs> is I, I'm an 80s kid, and I remember I had – my parents were very generous in terms of buying me Star Wars figures. And so I would have these massive epic battles between all my Star Wars figures, <laughs> and they would always end the same way, and that was with Boba Fett and Princess Leia escaping in the skate pod <laughs> Boba to, Fett repopulate, to repopulate, to <laughs> repopulate. Like, those were like my storytelling, you know? And then like in the 80s, Dungeons & Dragons is practically storytelling. Oh, yeah. And uh, But one thing that was kind of a turning point for me if you, I, I remember growing up and wanting to be a writer, but when I got to BYU, I took a playwriting class, and my professor challenged us to write a full-length play in a semester. Mm. And when I wrote it, I was like, oh, I can do this. You know, that's the thing. I think with budding artists or people that have a creative nature, you kind of need to do that first thing, and that makes you uh, realize, oh, I could do this, you know? So yeah. that was sort of a... A great experience for me that I got challenged to do that. So did you not know you wanted to go on a mission before you went to BYU? Wow. I think I didn't. I didn't. I, 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 I was not certain. Yeah. I was not certain. I will admit that. Yeah. Yeah. And then what was it at BYU that, that kind of catapulted it? Was it because everyone else was doing it? Or was it, what, did you feel that drive to go? Yeah, it's a real interesting question. You're getting deep. I'm going heavy. You are. I'm going That's heavy okay, here, though. Gibson. You know, this like I, well, I do remember, this is pretty personal, but I do remember an experience where I fasted for a long, long time, mm. and I went up behind the temple Yeah, and took a hike up there in that canyon Yep, and prayed about whether I should go on a mission. Mm. And that was... You know, it wasn't like an angel came out of the sky. I was, I was hoping for an experience like that. But that was, I remember coming back down out of the canyon and kind of deciding to go. 
Yeah. Tell us where you served your mission. Well, Chile Osorno. The Chile Osorno mission. Did yeah. you read your mission call and go, what? <laughs> <laughs> and we all knew Santiago. I read my mission call and went, Osorno. Oh, what, what is this word? I had never heard of it. I was excited. I think I was excited because I had a little Spanish. Not enough. Yeah. Um, and I just felt like, I mean, I'd heard stories that, you know, people were getting baptized down there and... Yeah, I don't know about you, but what a wonderful place to go! What I mean, wonderful! I was teaching it was the, the best. whole time, you know. It was amazing. You had to be, you it had to be pretty lazy not to teach people. <laughs> yeah, people, people were walking up to the house and knocking on the door. I remember, what it felt like I remember them saying, you know, uh, challenge people to be baptized in the f- first discussion yeah. that the spirit tells you to. And I remember contacts even where. Yeah. This is so fertile. The people there are so wonderful and so yeah, open. It was amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, so, and one of the things about you, so that our audience knows, you are one of, if not the most beloved missionary on from the mission. Everybody loved you. Not true, but that's But very again, sweet. you were my companion who was never, mm-hmm. we, we were together in multiple areas. We were just looking through some photos of us getting on planes together. And uh, really fun stuff. And this is where we kind of lose track of each other because there was no social media, nothing. We get home from our missions and boom, I don't know what happened. I didn't see you for many years until, we haven't even talked about this. We bumped into each other at LAX one time. I remember that. Yeah. And I remember we went to Truman's wedding. Oh, that's right. right. Yeah. We went to a wedding together. So, but you get home from the mission. Did you go back to Colorado? Or did you come uh, back no, to I BYU? Went, so I had spent a year before the mission at BYU. So when I went back, I went back to BYU Damn. and finished out in the next three years. And then I went to, uh, by the time I graduated, I double majored in English and theater and I wanted to be a screenwriter. So I applied to a lot of film schools, decided to go to USC and moved to California. Did you feel like that was necessary? Like, Because we've had this debate. I've had mm-hmm. several filmmakers... And there are some firmly in the camp of go to get your degree in film, get it. It's the best way to get into the film world. And others who have said, absolutely not. I got a degree in film. And then they'll say, it was a big waste. Just go work. What's your, where do you fall on that? Yeah. My opinion is if you can do it another way, maybe don't go to film school, but it depends on the person. So film school is not like men. People need to understand. I'd say this. People need to understand it's not like medical school or law school where you come out and boom, you're a lawyer or boom, you're a doctor. You come out like I was unemployed for the first nine months after I graduated from film school. Were you really? Yeah. And I remember this distinctly because USC called me asking for donations during that time. (laughs) And I was like, you got to get real. (laughs) And I, right. Uh, So uh, that's the way it is. And if you can get into the business another way, then yeah, skip film school. But what film school does for people is two things. One, you meet a lot of people and you meet a lot of people that may help you get a career and they're just really fascinating, interesting people. And then it also gives you time. It gives you time to screenwrite or time to make a film or time to discover what you want to do in film. So for me, it was, you know, writing and writing first and, uh, but I know people that went and they, in film school, they learned editing or they learned camera operating. They learned another skill that they're maybe more cut out for because I think uh, what film school does a lot of times, or at least the way USC did it, 
they give you exposure to a lot of different filmmaking disciplines. And also people need to realize well, they may not be writers. They may not have that component, yeah. that DNA. And that's an okay thing. And that's a valuable lesson to learn because yeah. otherwise you'll spin your wheels and, and probably be miserable. And you might be miserable even if you're an amazing writer. So that's so, the reality. So you graduate. Did you have illusion that I'm going to graduate and I'm just going to start writing and people are going to pay me to write? Or was, was this kind of what you expected? Uh, well, I was pretty confident in my writing ability. Um, and But yeah, I think I also was a little naive. You know, I thought, I thought I might, you know, that I'd get discovered or people would recognize my undeniable talent. And that's not really how Hollywood works. So, you know, what was your first job? So you're nine months. Did you work, uh, or did you just work on trying to get work? Like, did you end up taking a job during those nine months? So what I did, and this is really good advice for anyone. Well, okay. Keep in mind, this is like 98, right? So I graduated from the Y in 96, and then my program was two years, my master's program at USC. So I interned at four or five companies at the same time. So I was interning like crazy just Mm. trying to get my first gig, my first paid gig. And so I was interning at so many companies, like I'd intern at one Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and another Tuesday and Thursday, and I was doing coverage, which... If you you or your listeners don't know, that's when you read scripts and you write a report on them and say whether they're good or bad. I was doing those and getting paid like 50 bucks a pop. Um, And that's how I got by um, during those years. I was married at the time and my wife was – and I'm still married. I I was about to say (laughs) – trying to find a good way to clear that up you were married at same the same woman still married as you and, are now yes and uh, <laughs> she just almost took a really funny turn and so you know she was she was earning most of the money and um she was very supportive yeah there's what only your... one thing harder than being a screenwriter and that's being married to a screenwriter let me make that clear yeah i mean yeah no it's it's tough. yeah there's no job i mean screenwriter is not really a job in that you don't go in every day i mean it's not the it's not you're on projects, you know? Yeah, that, certainly starting out. When yeah. we had Bryce on here, who's a mutual friend, of yeah, course, right. you know, he was talking about that, about you're tied to a project, really, and you do these projects, and then if the project ends, you hope there's the next thing from uh-huh. that studio. Is it, per, that's, I mean, that's what he was saying about, you know, editing. Is it the same with writing? Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. It's, uh, I have a friend, and she had a great analogy, and she said, and, entertainment there's two types of jobs and she compared it to being a wild animal and how some wild animals are in the jungle and they have to run down a, a gazelle or an elephant and then they knot down and eat it down to the bone and then they chase another one and there's other people in entertainment that she compares to zoo animals where they're in the zoo and they get fed regularly but mm. they get restless because they are just pacing back and forth and they don't really quite have some freedom and you need to know i think that's good for young people starting out in entertainment to know because what type of animal are you what type of animal are you inclined to be and in your life you sort of change you know you may think when you're young you have lots of energy and ambition you can run out there in the jungle chase down the job which is like you know the 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 beast that you slay and devour then you're hungry again and you got to keep running yeah so that's a good analogy to understand that sounds to me, you know, we're almost exactly the same age, right? <laughs> obviously, um, sounds like a young man's game. 
It is, you know, it's, um, it is. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So For sure. Nine months in, you get your first big break. <laughs> I don't know. Hollywood well, comes calling. My, what was the first job? Well, my first big break, I mean, I was a paid intern at a company called the Robert Evans Company. And I was getting paid. Now, Robert Evans is like this legendary producer. Like, you've actually seen him. Like, mm. Bob Odenkirk does this incredible impression of him. He's like a <laughs> 70s, like, you know. Anyhow, so I ended up working for him, and I was a paid intern, and I was making a couple hundred a, a week, you know? Yeah. And then eventually I, I got uh, brought on full-time, and I was a second assistant. <laughs> so, you know, that's like there's a first assistant. If somebody's pow- powerful enough or established enough, they can afford to have two assistants, and I was a second assistant, which was perfect for me because I didn't really have the skills to be a first assistant, which is like, you know, uh, scheduling and, and doing phone calls and conferencing and like you actually have to be good at that stuff. So your your first job in the industry was not specifically writing. It was no more no. of almost like a producer no. type of a role. No a second assistant. Not not at all like a producer. No, I was an assistant. Most people in entertainment come up as an assistant. Yeah, or you know, like in the mailroom or a production assistant. So you were literally an assistant for you. I mean, you could have gone and get lunch type stuff. Oh, yeah, I did that stuff. I had a lot of experiences where I did not know how to make coffee. <laughs> and I was asked to make coffee. You probably got pretty good at making coffee. No, never. No. <laughs> I was asked to make coffee once and I tried it. This is a true story. And I put it on my boss's desk. And she, of course, knew I was a member of the church. And I went in there like 20 minutes later and the coffee was in the trash and she was drinking a Diet Coke. <laughs> Because I, when you say you tried it, you mean you tried making the coffee, not drinking the coffee. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I got to clarify that because no, you said no. Yeah, I tried it. Yes, you know. no. Yeah, you never asked the Latter Day Saint kid to make your coffee for no, you. No, they learned the hard hard way. <laughs> so you're working as an assistant. I mean, were you able to work ever on set or on projects? Well, I did. I was assistant? a development assistant, which was great for me because I read a lot of scripts mm. and I would give notes on them or suggest, you know. Uh, actors or directors for the project and yeah yeah i really enjoyed that work and then what was kind of the next step in your career (laughs) from there oh my gosh well i was you know i was an assistant for a while and it was it's sometimes tough to make that next level uh move and uh i remained an assistant for I don't know, a couple of years at least. I I moved to another company where I was working, which was owned by Dolly Parton. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, 9-11 happened, really. This is about 2001. Yeah. And my wife and I wanted to start a family. And she won before she did that, before we were going to start a family, she really wanted to go to Europe and and travel. And I was really reluctant to quit my job, even though it wasn't a spectacular job, because it was really hard to find. As has you know, I'd had a lot of experience with unemployment and and just trying to get a toehold, but I did. I quit and we traveled Europe. It was right after nine eleven, and there was a contraction in a lot of industry. We were talking about this. Yeah. Uh, after nine eleven, there was kind of a contraction in the entertainment economy and I think development. Everything. Yeah, and development jobs were were cut, and studios were saying, "Why are we paying all this money for people to just?" Develop. You've heard of development hell, right? When scripts just sort of stay, projects don't really get off the board, and so they really cut a lot of those jobs. And that was precisely the time I, I went on. Um, you know, we we went and traveled for six weeks in Europe, and we came back, and I had planned to get 
back into being an assistant or doing development. And uh, the jobs just weren't there when we got back. Wow. <laughs> so so I sort of started over. That's where my, my career took a turn because I was uh, – at the same time, I had a friend and she's, I was looking for work again. And she said, do you want to be a logger? And I honestly thought, you know, lumberjack. That's what right? I just thought. Right. Everyone thinks lumberjack. I, I was just like, pictured oh. Monty Python. I was like, <laughs> I'm a lumberjack and I don't care. Yeah. So I said yes. And then I was like, what's a logger? And that's logging footage. So uh, this is when reality TV really started to take off. And so I went in and I was a night logger, which was the lowest. That honestly is probably the lowest job in entertainment. <laughs> so you go in at like 6 p.m. and you log footage. So you watch raw footage, raw reality footage, and type into a computer what you're watching. And then it's searchable. So the editors uh, via computer can search it and find the material they need to make a TV show. So that's how I started in reality TV. What was the first show you worked on? Ah, so that show was, um, uh, what was that called? Survivor, Survivor kind of started the whole thing with, with reality, right? And wasn't that kind of the first mega mega hit? Yeah. Because it seemed like in that time frame around there. I think that's fair to say. There were other pro- programs like Real World. Real World, yeah. What yeah. really led to the reality TV explosion, and this might be a little boring for your audience, is the invention of nonlinear editing. So prior to that uh, and digital editing – uh, you know, people would have to splice, actually splice film and tape it together. And they did documentary and nonfiction projects. And some of them were actually quite successful, but it was such a t- painstaking experience to edit them that it wasn't cost efficient. So when that, that led to the explosion of reality TV, that technology. Yeah, I never thought about that, but it yeah. makes sense because if you shoot something scripted, you shoot what you need and you shoot the same thing again and again until you get the way you want it. Yeah. And then you use the take you wanted. Whereas with reality, you shoot thousands of hours yep. to get it down to these one-hour shows. Yep. So what was the first show you worked on? So I did. Uh, I worked on a show called Freshman Diaries, where they followed freshmen at the University of Texas, and a show called Profiles from the Front Line, hmm. which was, you know, this was after 9-11, so that was a, just a, a, you know, following soldiers in Afghanistan. It's pretty interesting, yeah. So you're logging footage saying, you know, Marcia walks across campus, enters the library, talks to Bob. Yeah. You're just typing that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's like screenwriting in reverse. Yeah. And it's pretty, (laughs) it's really, really boring sometimes, but also you learn to really observe human behavior. Yeah. And look for those moments that an editor might find interesting, moments of drama or comedy or conflict. Yeah. So uh, that's crazy. Yeah. How long did you do that job? I don't know. Uh, maybe a year or so. And yeah. then I got, I mean, just to <laughs> cut to the present, I clawed my way up. I went from that to being an associate story editor to a story producer to a supervising story producer. A story producer is the equivalent of a writer for non for reality TV. They decide what goes in and what goes out. And sometimes they write the voiceover and that kind of thing. And then, I ended up supervising a team of story producers and then supervising producer and then co-executive producer and yeah. then executive producer. So it was a long road and I sort of got swept up in, you know, the explosion of reality TV and it was like the wild west. There was a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. So what were some of the bigger shows you've worked on? I know one that 
some of our fans will squeal when they hear that you worked <laughs> on it. But uh, what are some of the ones you worked I on? I don't know. Uh, so I was on Dancing with the Stars, the first four seasons of that. Yeah. What did you do on Dancing with the Stars? Because, I mean, that's talk about a mega hit. Sure. What, was, what, what did you do on Dancing with the Stars? So at that point, I was a story producer. And if you watch Dancing with the Stars, they have the little stories before they go out and dance. And I, I was on the first season, and I worked with the editors to put together those three-minute stories that play right before they go out and dance. So I did, by the time I left, I'd done like 120 of those little three-minute stories. Did you ever work with any of the stars that dance, or was it all just behind the scenes? Um, I didn't work very closely with them because I would communicate with the field producers who worked with them on a daily basis. And um, I would say, can we get something like this? Can we get something like that? Or we'd work on saying what we thought the story that week would be. Yeah, I did, though... Meet Jerry Springer. I did his stories, and that, he was that was awesome. I love the idea of the Latter Day Saint editor with Jerry Springer. Like that's <laughs> that's fantastic. Not editor, but producer. Totally. Uh, so, and that's I think something that are that I find like surprising, but it makes sense. Like it feels. I guess if you do your job right, it feels like it all just kind of happened. Like you don't yeah. think about somebody saying, okay, the story behind this guy is they hurt their ankle and then they had to come back from that. And you're telling them, go get this kind of footage. Can Yeah. Can I tell you a real quick story? Yes, of okay, course. So this That's is like my for. favorite. Well, I have a couple really cool Please. memories regarding Dancing with the Stars that are true. So my first day on the job, I show up and we were watching casting footage of the dancers. So I went in and sat next to this producer named Mike. And we were watching this tape of this dancer, and she, she's a little cute, cute girl, girl next door, and she was talking about she ha- how she had these standards and that she was from Utah, and it was Ashley Del Grosso, right? She's a <laughs> member of the church. And the guy next to me, Mike's like, what? What is she talking about? And normally when you, you know, you're a member of the church and you take a job, it takes a while before people realize you're a member of the church. So I just told him, I said, you know, I happen to be... Uh, a Mormon. And uh, so funny thing, Mike and Ashley ended up dating and getting married. And now they live here in Utah County and have like five kids. But it all started kind of with that conversation. No kidding. Yeah. And he wasn't a member of the He church. wasn't. And then he later on, he's like, I remember I got to know him and he used to chew tobacco. And he's like, I think I should stop. And I said, well, if you stop chewing tobacco, I'll stop drinking Dr. Pepper. And he succeeded, and yet I failed. So I wasn't the best example for him in many ways. <laughs> I wasn't about to bring it up, but full disclosure, we just went out to dinner yeah, where you Dr. were Pepper. imbibing some Dr. Pepper, yeah. and I was throwing back a few Diet Cokes. I'm so. a straight-up yeah. straight up addict. That's to... so awesome. And he lives in Utah now. He lives in Utah, but what I really wanted to talk about was Ashley ended up being partnered with Master P, right? Oh, yeah. And my favorite actual story that we did is there was this story where Master P went with Ashley to Utah and met her family, and they prayed around the table. And he was like, you know, there's not a lot of black people here. And he was walking through Salt Lake with Ashley, and they ran into other black family that it was here because of, uh, I think, Hurricane Katrina mm. at the time. So it was a super positive representation of not only Utah, but the church. So positive that they were like, the producers were, this is a little 
prop, you know, almost plays like propaganda for your people. And I was like, okay. So, but yeah, I don't know. You know, it, it was neat because that story went out to like, at that time, 25, 30 million people were watching that show. And those numbers you'll never see again in broadcast television because of how television has changed since then. Yeah, there's no, there's no more audience like it used to be. No, no, it's so fractured. It, so you did this for four years or four seasons. Right. You worked about on two years. Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. Two, two years, so four, four seasons. Yeah. What was your next move from there? Well, I don't remember what show I went to specifically. I mean, I've done a number of shows. Um, is I there did, a show that you cringe? Like, do you, is there any show that you worked on that you go, holy cow, I really wish that was just buried under the earth? <laughs> no. no. No, I'm proud of everyone. That's I'm good. proud of everyone, to be honest. Uh, anything else notable that uh, our listeners would, would know that you worked on? Um, well, the, the, the names that most people recognize are X Factor and Top Gear. Those are kind of the big super nanny. What was your work on Top Gear? So that was a little further on in my career, and I worked on the last season of the American version of Top Gear. I have to make that clear because there's a right. like four or five different versions of Top Gear. And uh, so I I oversaw all of post-production, and mm. car shows are a blast to work on. There's so, no question. So there were two American versions of Top Gear. There was the Matt LeBlanc later rendition. Then there was the earlier one with... Uh, Redford, um, what's his name? And there was the racer guy. Yeah, Tanner and yeah. Rutledge yeah, and Rutledge, Adam yeah. were yeah. the guys. Yeah. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a fun show. But you were never on set or anything. You were doing all post. For that one, yeah. For that one. Um, Have prior- you been on set for any projects? Yeah, quite a few. I mean, I ultimately became uh, a showrunner where I was on set. I've done shows where I was on set every day and in charge of the production. So the showrunner is one of, if not the most important person in a show. Like that's kind of who really runs things, makes it all happen. There's a great documentary about showrunners. I had no idea because mm-hmm. I haven't done a lot in the TV world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a wonderful documentary about the role of a showrunner. I did not realize what a big deal that role is. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of responsibility. Do you like being on set or do you like working behind the scenes more? I love both for different reasons, and I think um, certainly in in nonfiction tell- storytelling and reality, you got to do both, and you got to understand both. If you only do post production, then you're in the bay with the editor, and you're cursing the camera operators, and why didn't they get this shot? And they don't know what you know. We need this, and can't they follow the story? And you know, then you get out there and you're actually in the field and you run into things like changes in weather or difficult talent or the 80,000 things that can go wrong. And you realize, wow, it's hard out there, you know, and um, the, it's a much more physical thing. Both both parts of the job or both aspects have their own challenges, but it's good to know both. And you're a better producer if you know both. When when we had Bryce Randall on, uh, who Bryce is just so fantastic, he talked about this community of Latter-day Saint film people uh, who, when he was looking for a job, he knew that if he hit up the other Latter-day Saint guy, that there was a little bit of let's take care of each other and a little bit of networking. Did you see that in Hollywood? Yeah, I feel like uh, there's, yes, 
but not enough. You know, I think that uh, members of the church and entertainment should network more than they do. Um, but it's important to network regardless. Um, yeah. And with people of all kinds and all faiths and, and ne- just network constantly, that's the one thing that will keep you employed and keep you working. Did your co- co-workers know that you were a member of the church? Did that come up ever? Oh, constantly. Normally, it doesn't come up early. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, a few weeks into the job. And <laughs> and I always remember one coworker, when she found out I was a member of the church, she's like, but you're so cool. <laughs> and I was like, well, thank you. <laughs> Have you ever gotten a comment like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And oh. you're just like, they have no idea that that, yeah. I mean, you, I think one of the neat things is, and it's different now, but breaking down those stereotypes out there. Yeah. Um, this is fun. Yeah. That's really great. So you've had a major life change right. recently. And actually we caught up because we bumped into each other at a concert, right? Uh, which is kind of funny. We've had Parker Jacobs on the show talking about all his work with the Aquabats. Then we bumped into each other at an Aquabats concert. Oh, so yeah. what brought you to Utah? So I recently took a job at BYU TV, and I'm an executive producer there now. Uh, and I, so I've been working there about eight months now. And yeah, I just turned my life. I literally put my life in a blender <laughs> and, uh, you know, capsized my family and all our, all that we had built out there in California. Was your wife excited to come to Utah, or is she still kind of dealing with it? She uh, is dealing with it. It's been hard. There's no no denying it. Because she's not from Utah, right? No. Where's yeah, she from? She grew up in Irvine, California. Yeah, she's an Orange County girl. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, Utah County is not Orange County, for no. better and worse. I yeah. would say for both. I spend a lot of time in Orange County. I yeah. Mean, there are things I love about Orange County. Other things that you kind of start to appreciate. And, you know, you're here in the worst winter we've had in... <laughs> <laughs> a very it's long true. time coming from it's true. coming from Orange County in Los Angeles, and we have gotten snow and ice and cold like yeah we haven't had in a lot of years. Yeah, and then you got three daughters. How are they adjusting to the move? They're adjusting, but it was hard. Especially, I have a 15 year old, mm. and she was in, you know in love with her high school and and doing a lot of neat extracurricular stuff. And yeah, so yeah, I really it was been hard on my family, but we're we're settling down. The transition took a lot longer than I thought. Um. But uh, I mean, it was just the right thing. It was yeah. it was tough, and I knew it would be tough, but it was just the right thing at the right time. So through the podcast and through some other things, I've gotten to know a fair amount of BYU TV people. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. BYU TV is really putting its foot down and saying, we're going to do a whole bunch of big, audacious stuff. Like it used to be... BYU TV for me was kind of like the channel I'd flip through mm-hmm. and four guys are sitting around discussing the Book of Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> and right. now it's full on big production shows. You know, like I said, we've had people on uh, from from Relative Race. We had Stephen Jones on who was a host for Random Acts. Yeah. We've had some some big people on. What projects are you working on? Okay. Well, I, I think it's really cool that you use the word audacious. I wonder if that was coincidence because that's like actually one of our value. Like we have a mission statement, and one of our one of our uh, values or like buzzwords or whatever is audacious. To do I had no idea. Stuff. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah, right? I didn't know that. Um, so what I do is I report to the director of content, and I run a team called the content team, which is me and three other producers. And our role is to develop new shows. 
and also supervise existing shows. So our team is over all the existing shows mm. and we divide it up and different team members are over different shows. Um, and sometimes two people will be on a show um, and work with the producers and be the, be kind of the points of contact is what we say with our, our production partners. So I have uh, two roles and that the, that's one is to supervise the existing shows and the other is to develop new shows. Yeah. And when people want to pitch ideas, they, they pitch them to me or my team. And that's kind of an exciting part of the job. That's fun. But it's a lot of responsibility too, right? It is, but uh, yeah, it's a long road between meeting with us and actually a show getting made. But we're the first step. So yeah. It's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. What do you love about BYU TV now that you've settled in eight months? Wow, that's a good question. Well, I feel like uh, I'm kind of using my powers for good, you know? Mm. I use... I've worked on a lot of shows uh, before I came to BYU TV where I I feel like, wow, this isn't really making the world a better place. (laughs) It's keeping the lights on. Yeah. But now I feel like, you know, nearly everything we do, we ask that question of, is it positive? Is it purposeful? Is it uplifting? Yeah. Um, You know, we don't want to make shows that uh, preach to people. We know that doesn't work. We're trying to double our audience. Um, But... Um, I do feel like we're doing shows that we can, I can feel good about, you know, yeah. that I can feel like are making the world a better place. We had Scott Christopher on from uh, Granite Flats was a guest on the show, uh-huh. but he talked about BYU pulls out all the stops. Like, I mean, it's full. I mean, do you see it similar to how Hollywood productions are done? He was saying that cause he's worked in Hollywood and here that it's first class all the way. Well, we've got a great facility. The broadcast building is amazing. We yeah. have great studio space. We're um, competitive and comparable in many ways to, you know, Hollywood productions. Um, we have people out. And the other thing that's happened in the last year is we've really opened the doors to um, the biggest and best production companies in the in LA awesome. and New York, and they call me us on the phone, and we call them, and we ask for their ideas, and and they come and they work with us and then they go back to LA or or New York and they're like, hey, these guys are pretty cool. And the word's starting <laughs> to get out. And we get 40 to 50, some weeks we'll get like 40 to 50 submissions. And that's a lot to process. We try and engage with every idea and evaluate it and decide whether we want to pursue it or not. It's awesome. Uh, anything you want to tease? Anything coming up on BYU TV that people should keep an eye out for? Or is that all under wraps? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, but I'm going to talk all about it. (laughs) (laughs) We got some amazing shows coming up. We're really excited about a show called Dwight and Shining Armor, Mm. which is, uh, the story of a kid named Dwight and he runs into a sort of sorcerer and a, a warrior princess. And they're, they tell him that he's the chosen one. He's a champion. And he's like a nerdy sort of nebbish, um, (laughs) Uh, milk toast kind of guy and he ends up they're expecting conan the barbarian and he ends up solving all these problems with diplomacy and inclusion and warmth and it's a real positive message and what we're emphasizing is co-viewing so we're we're actually seeking a demographic aged uh eight to fifteen so young kids but we want co-viewing which is uh 
this is pretty obvious, but it's an industry term for parents to watch too. Mm. Sort of the Pixar model. You see a Pixar movie and there's enough for adults to really love. And that's what we're trying to make. And, you know, when you and I were growing up in the 80s, most television was made for families to watch together. Now, that's not the case. It's the, the opposite. And that has led to better television, honestly. But there's some territory there that has been forfeited and BYU TV wants to stake a claim and, you know, make television that families can gather around and watch together. And that's our goal. That's Uh, Well, before we wrap up, and this has just been so much fun catching up, I have here in front of me, and then I've got one last question for you, but I do have here in front of me an early (laughs) writing sample before (laughs) you were the big Hollywood writer, before you were the big producer. I have a journal that I took on my mission with me. I didn't write in it. I didn't write a single page. I just had every missionary. And by the way, if you're going on a mission, I highly recommend this. But I had every missionary that I hung out with write in this, and they'd write something about remember these times or whatever. And I am just in love. It's one of my most prized possessions. And this is a writing sample uh, from you, Brian. You haven't read this. This was from 27 years ago. But what you wrote was, Rapier, before the world was organized, we were intelligences. Among us all, there were the noble and great. That wasn't us. (laughs) We were among the hip. (laughs) And when they had the council in the heavens, we sat on the back row and whispered, hey, nice tie, Satan. (laughs) What, did Cain pick it out for you? But it blends in with the red horns, though. Works well. Really, it's definitely you. And then we were sent here. (laughs) And that, when I read that, I thought, Gibson's going to go on to do such amazing, creative, (laughs) awesome things. The idea that Satan's tie matched his horns and that Cain picked it out for him. It was just phenomenal. Um, We're going to wrap things up with the question that we ask of all of our guests. No right or wrong answer. But the question for you, Brian Gibson, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Oh, wow. I had no idea this would be, like, remotely spiritual. Yeah, it is remotely spiritual. <laughs> Only remotely, but... We're like, it's like you're not even on the back row with me we anymore. Just, no, I, no, this is... This is, this what, is we, we ask every one of our guests this. Every guest gets asked this question. What does being a member of the church mean to me? What does being a member of the church mean to you? By the way, we've had, we had one guest who said joy. Yeah. That was it. We've had other guests that have expounded for 10 minutes, so... What is being a member of the church? I should have prepped you for this, but I'm kind of glad I yeah, didn't. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I just feel like I want to say that uh, the members of this church are my people, you know? And it doesn't matter if you haven't been to church in 20 years. It doesn't matter if you're struggling with addiction or depression um we have a bond you and i that member and um or if you're you know like super active and you know we have a bond we have something in common and um and we're all just struggling every day to do our best and get back to the presence of our heavenly father together and we have to do it together and that's kind of interesting. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's who I am and it's who I choose to be. And I'm 47 now. I think I'll stick with it. 
That is a perfect way to wrap it up. Uh, in addition to being one of my longest running friends, and it was fun tonight. I feel like we picked up right where we left off 27 years ago when we were two knucklehead kids running around Chile. You are uh, an amazing husband, father, writer, and producer, and KBYU is lucky to have you. Brian, thank you for coming in and sharing your latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Ah, thank you, Sean. It's been so much fun. And my special thanks to my dear friend, Brian Gibson. We had so much fun hanging out, going out to dinner, telling old stories that some of which I had forgotten about or he had forgotten about and just laughing and having a great time. Those bonds you make while serving together in the mission just are so special. And I really appreciate Brian. Uh, This week in my latter day life, a couple of big things that happened. One, uh, we had a wonderful sweet lady in our ward pass away. And, you know, whenever someone passes away, it's a little bit sad. She was 94 years old. You can only be so sad when someone lives to the beautiful age of 94 and stays faithful all the way to the very end. And our friend Eileen, who passed away, she uh, just as good a woman as they come. And she was literally a person who called every member of the ward for their birthday. Everybody was talking about that, how this year we'll all miss getting our birthday calls. And then also on New Year's Eve, she would call to wish you a happy new year. She just brought such a wonderful spirit. And as I went to her viewing uh, the other night and saw all the people, it felt like such a celebration of her life. And I was very touched. And I thought, you know, I hope I live to be old enough or at least Uh, to be happy enough that my death is a celebration and that people are just remembering me. I hope I can bring joy to the world that way. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I told you about a young man who had had some struggles with whom I've become very close, who invited me to his ceiling. And over the past weekend, my wife and I went to his ceiling. And as we were sitting in the uh, ceiling room, waiting for him and his bride-to-be to come in, it was a good 10 minutes. And of course, we were sitting there quietly. And I started pondering the fact that I didn't see him before he actually walked in. He had invited me. I said I would come. And I think he assumed that I would be there, but he didn't know for sure that I would be there and didn't know until he walked in. And there we were with parents and aunts and uncles and friends. And it was such a joyous occasion. And I was thinking about Eileen and I was thinking about her funeral and her wake and also thinking about this wedding and how they were both joyous events. But I also thought about waiting, how we were waiting uh, for this young man and his bride-to-be to come in. But it got me thinking that while the temple is really to teach us about the eternities, and there are so many eternal lessons, was there a room like that waiting for our friend Eileen? Was there a room that was filled with her husband who passed away years ago, her parents, Uh, friends, loved ones, were they sitting and waiting? And maybe she was expecting them, but she wasn't 100% sure that they were going to get there, (laughs) that they would be there for her. How joyous that reunion must have been. And at the end of this wedding, uh, as we walked around and we were able to give this young man and and, uh, his new bride a big hug, I kept thinking about my friend Eileen. Did she walk into a room? I don't know how it all works. But I know there were some reunions and that they were joyous. 
and that the bonds that we make here on earth, whether they be with people to whom we're sealed, but I think also our friends, my friend Brian Gibson, who we talked to today, and this wonderful young man, and my friend Eileen, will she be there? When it's my time to die, will she be in the waiting room waiting for me to welcome me in? I believe she will, and I believe that that's what this is all about. Recently, I've had a nice extra focus on the temple. I've just felt this strong need to make the temple a bigger part of my life. And this is why the lessons we learn in the temple give us such eternal perspective. And I'm so grateful for temples. I'm grateful for the wonderful young man who got married today. And I'm grateful for my friend Eileen. And I look forward to seeing her again and maybe being in the waiting room for some other people. And that's what's happening this week in my latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. It means the world to us. If you want to reach out to us for any reason, especially if you have good ideas for guests, we've been following up with a lot of your suggestions. I can be reached at Sean at LatterdayLives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at LatterdayLives.com. We, of course, are on Facebook, Instagram. We're on uh, Twitter as well. And if you want to share the uh, podcast, you can either go to LatterdayLives.com Go to SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, um, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere that you get your podcast, and we would love it if you'd share it. The show just keeps on growing every single week. We keep getting bigger and bigger, and it's thanks to listeners like you. So until next week, when we will have another fantastic episode, please remember, as always, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>